My aim in this message is to bring God's word to bear on the amazing, wonderful, historic moment uh, in the life of our church where we find ourselves right now. The moment I have in mind is uh, more generally the overlapping phase in the transition process between my 32 years here as lead pastor for preaching and vision and the person who will fulfill that role after me. That phase that we're in right now that's going to involve some overlapping. And the specific moment I want to speak into is the seven-week moment in which we find ourselves between last Tuesday night's unanimous vote of the Council of Elders to recommend Jason Meyer as the associate for preaching and vision, and your vote on May 20 in response to that recommendation. So that's the moment of our church, this wonderful, amazing, historic moment that I want to speak God's Word into. I will say more about that moment and that person, Jason. I will stand him here with his family in a few minutes and pray over that family with you. But our first business is to hear from God. And so I'm going to pray now and ask for his help as we do that. So, Father, here we are in need of a voice that is not mine, nor Jason's, but yours. We have it written in a book, and we want to hear it now in the power of the Holy Spirit as I make an effort to give it voice in this sermon. So, come and speak into this historic moment of our church what this church on each of these campuses needs to hear. Humble me under your word. Carry me by your spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts to see and the ears of our hearts to hear your voice. And oh, may it have a deep, powerful, unifying, Christ-exalting, discernment-giving effect upon our church. I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. This text, especially verses 5 through 9, which is all I'm going to look at, is designed by God to to teach a church how to think and feel about a situation in which there are two leaders who have become a flashpoint of pride and division. Now, that's the case in Corinth. As far as I can tell, it's not the case here. Therefore, this message is preemptive. I'm not trying to solve a problem I see. I'm trying to avoid a problem that could be if God Almighty didn't do this text among us. So it's an amazingly well-designed text by God for a church that is going to have its sights on two leaders for a season here. And I pray that as a church... God will work a wonderful, peaceful, humble, God-exalting season that this text is precisely designed to produce. And you'll see that very clearly. So, the setting. I just said uh, two leaders have become flashpoint of pride and division. The two leaders are Paul and Apollos. To see the setting, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, 1 Corinthians 1, 11. 
it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So, the church is lining up in Corinth behind their favorite teachers. They're making that lineup a flashpoint of their own boasting. We're going to hear that very clearly later. And that boasting and pride is producing quarreling, and the quarreling is producing divisions. And this letter, the first four chapters of this letter, is written to fix that. All four chapters. Now, you may ask, why did you say they're lining up behind two teachers? We just saw three plus Jesus. Cephas was included. You didn't include him. Why not? Because evidently it's mainly Paul and Apollos that are the issue. And the reason I say that is because they come in for way more special notice in this letter. So, for example, look at chapter 3, verse 4. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? No mention of Cephas. No mention of Jesus. Why? Because evidently the big groups, the big problem people, are behind Paul and Apollos. Or look at our text, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. He's not, Cephas is off the scene here. And he stays off the scene for the, until the end of the chapter. Or verse 6. I planted, I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered. God gave the growth. Cephas is not a problem here. Paul is a problem. Apollos is a problem. Evidently, that's the big issue. Now look chapter 4, verse 6. We're still setting the stage here. Chapter 4, verse 6, Paul is summing up the three chapters, and he says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. That's all. For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be, here's the issues, puffed up in favor of one against another. Those are the issues, pride and division. That's the issue being addressed here. Two very strong, popular leaders, Apollos and Paul, have followings, and it's causing a lot of trouble at Corinth. And that's why he wrote the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians puffed up, that's bad enough, in favor of one against another. So when pride latches on to vicarious notoriety, you get some pretty bad things in a church. So Paul wants to undo the boasting, and that's why he says in 131, let him who boasts boast in the Lord... And he wants to get rid of the, the division, and we'll see that in our text when he talks about the oneness of Paul and Apollos. So, here's what we're going to do. Start at verse 5 and walk right through five verses. I usually jump all around, mix them all up, create my own structure. Not this time. <laughs> we're just going to walk right through, take every phrase as it comes, and then when I get to the end of the exposition and the application to our situation, I'm going to relate again to the, the process issues, the future issues, and the person, and then we'll pray for Jason. So that's where we're going. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. So adjust your thinking, Corinthians. Adjust your thinking about your favorite teacher. What are they? 
servants. The word here is not doulos, slave, but diakonos, table waiter. These are table waiters. In the analogy, they're not the honored guests at the meal. They're not at the head of the table. They're not the owner of the house where the banquet is being held. They didn't make the food in the kitchen. They are serving it. They are table waiters. Hello, my name is John. I'll be serving you tonight. Would you like to begin with a drink? So, adjust your thinking and be careful not to put Paul or Apollos or John or Jason or whoever in the wrong place. Verse 5 again now. They are servants through whom you believe. The word through is clearly important, is it not? through whom you believed. In other words, the power that brought you to faith or strengthened your faith, remember it's going to be planting and watering, planting and watering, they both are producing faith. The faith that is either beginning in your life or growing in your life, the power to do that resides in no man. And therefore not, not Paul and not in Apollos. Through whom you believe, through whom you believe. That power came from somewhere else. It is not resident in a human being. So, be careful lest in your enthusiasm about saying nice things about an effective leader, you start attributing to them things that belong only to God. Servants through whom you believe. We are table waiters. We may be courteous and winsome. We may be crabby and inattentive. And it does not affect the taste of the food or whether you get life from it. Paul and Apollos are not saviors. They are not the gospel. They are not the Holy Spirit. They are not the source of power. They are not God. They are table waiters. And the faith that happens when the food of God's word is put on the table comes through them like a canal, not from them like a spring. They don't originate, they deliver. Therefore, Corinthians, readjust your thinking about them because you've got it wrong. You're causing a great deal of trouble, Corinthians. Again, verse 5. Paul and Apollos are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned, or the word is gave, to each. So, Corinthians, you are detecting some differences in the way people respond to these teachers, aren't you? When Paul or Apollos take the leadership, you detect some differences in the response of people. How should you think about that? The Lord assigns those differences. When it says, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned that response, that faith to each one, one response, one group of re- believing out here to, to Paul and one believing out here to Apollos, if you detect differences out there, who are you going to chalk it up to? I mean, this is about the sovereignty of God, folks. If, if you don't feel the awesome supremacy of God in this text, I don't know where you might feel it. If you think the differences in responsiveness 
are ultimately owing to them, you don't understand how faith arises. And yes, you come to faith through Paul, or yes, you come to faith or grow in faith through Apollos, but God gave that faith as God assigns responsiveness, faith. God gave that faith. God assigned that response. Don't think Paul or Apollos was decisive in causing your faith. They weren't. Decisively, the diversity of responses is owing to God. End of verse 5. Verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Now, this is the same point with different words, isn't it? God is decisive, not man. He's going to say this again, even more emphatically. But here, notice, he does acknowledge they're doing something. I planted. Planting is important if you're a farmer and you want a crop. Uh, Apollos watered. That, that's important too if you want a crop. God gave the growth. The supernatural thing that's happening out there in human souls, I can stand here and plant. I can stand here and water. I can't do anything out there. Nothing. The miracles that happen out there, I am so desperate to have happen and can't make happen. I want miracles inside of you. I can plant. Jason can water. We can't do anything inside of you. God can. Did. Will. Now, maybe. We pray in that way. So verse 5 says, what comes through planting and watering is faith. Servants through whom you believed. So the effect of the planting is faith. The effect of the watering is faith. It's not like the planting produces faith and the watering produces something else. That's not what verse 5 said. Through you both, the planter and the waterer, comes faith. That's all we're after in our preaching is more and more confidence and trust because faith works through love and love is visible and therefore the world can see Jesus. But it all starts with and it's produced by faith. So we're always watering and planting for faith. The emphasis here falls on God, not man, isn't it? I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. And it's texts like these and hundreds of others in the Bible that make us want to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things. This text is so theocentric, so God-centered. And so is the mission statement of this church. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in planting. And the supremacy of God in watering. And the supremacy of God in the origin of faith and the strengthening of faith. We're always pushing through to God here. May it ever be so. Verse 7. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. That's amazing. They are nothing. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. They're nothing. Now, it's amazing for a couple of reasons. One is, if I said that, I'd get emails. 
Stop using that kind of overstatement. It doesn't help people to minimize human responsibility and be so God-centered you're always muting the human. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I get these emails. I'm so glad I know my Bible because if I get criticized for something I'm reading in the Bible, I just say, okay. You know, a good, a little, this is not in my manuscript. This is parenthesis. Good test for you. If you ever get your back up about something a leader says or does, and you're about to say something bad about it, pause and see if you can remember anybody in the Bible who did it and got commended for it. And then, and then adjust your criticism so that you know the difference between what that was and what you're about to say bad things about. If, if that happened... I'm picking a number, 80, 90% of criticism would cease. Because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible God approves that people don't like. Okay, that was not in the manuscript. I may regret having said it, but I feel at this point okay about it. (laughs) My wife will tell me later whether that was a good idea. I'm lost here. Where Where am I? Verse 7. Oh, yes, this is amazing that he would talk this way first because it just looks like a wild overstatement that nobody would approve of. Here's the second reason that it's amazing. Paul mentions Epaphroditus, for example, in Philippians 1.29 and says, honor such men. They risk their lives for the gospel. Honor such men. And he says about the Thessalonians, he says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, esteem your leaders very highly in love because of their work. Doesn't sound like nothing. So I conclude trying to be own all of the Bible. My job is to figure out all of the Bible, not pick my favorite piece. Like, I don't want to mean nothing. Well, yeah, you do. Or don't you? I must decrease. How much? He must increase. How much? How invisible? (laughs) So here's my conclusion. The nothingness of Paul and Apollos or John and Jason is not a nothingness that makes them less honorable, maybe more. In the church, honor should be bestowed on people in direct proportion to their self-humbling, not their self-exaltation. We are a, a countercultural people, please. And therefore, probably what Paul meant was, in comparison to God's decisive work in bringing about the miracle of faith, it is as though Paul and Apollos are nothing. In comparison. A billion high and one-tenth high. Where is is Paul and Apollos in this? When the sun shines so brightly in a church, can you see the candles anymore? No. Can't see the stars when the sun's out in the daytime. The stars are nothing in the daytime. Just massive balls of fire out there doing their thing, but they're nothing while the Son of God is shining in the world, or in church. That's verse 7. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. He who plants and he who waters are one. One in purpose, to build people's faith and to make much of God. One in dependence on the spring that's flowing that they're trying to be good table waiters with. One in love for the people 
of Corinth and Bethlehem, one in message to preach Christ crucified. Read, read chapter 2. If you read chapter 2 by itself, you might think, it didn't have anything to do with Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Oh, yes, it does. And step back and ask, with four and one clearly all being about this division stuff, why is Christ crucified so central in chapter 2? But that's not this sermon. So they are one. Therefore, Corinth, don't make them a means of division. Second half of verse 8. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. So, you... This was the hardest one for me to figure out. Um, you are noticing differences in Paul and Apollos. Differences. Different gifts. Different emphases. Different skill sets, different instincts. You're noticing differences and you see differences in the way they work. That's the focus here, work. They're going to get rewarded for their work. So you're noticing differences in the way they work and you think, Corinth, you think you can put a fitting and appropriate value on the work of the one and the other and they measure them and then put one above or below because you can see different work styles or work emphases or work intensities or work effectiveness or their work is different. They're not identical and you are starting to do this. And I think Paul is saying... You don't know their work. One knows and he will reward according to their labor. You don't know what you're looking at. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say the point of this text is to call attention to the fact that God's going to do the assessment. God's going to do the rewarding. Don't you go there and try to decide who is the superior or not. Why do I say that's the emphasis? And the reason I do is because of what comes next, which we are not preaching on. Verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. Capital D meaning judgment day. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. That's why I say, Bethlehem, you don't know my work. God does. You have no idea what will be burned up in my life. You think you do. You think you can say pretty confidently about his preaching or his leadership or his writing or whatever. You don't. Only God sees this. This very message at this very moment could be burned up. Because my heart may be vain. So, when he says, each one will receive his wages according to his labor, he means from God. Because the day will reveal it. Fear and trembling belong to those who teach in the house of God. Because all outward purposes look like he can do that. Very sobering. God will give them their rewards appropriately in ways that you cannot presently imagine. My son and I were talking today over lunch about, about churches around the country big churches and, and all kinds of leadership styles and leadership attitudes and things you like and you don't like. And, and we just said, we, we better not pass any final judgments here 
on a person's standing or falling before the Lord. He stands and he falls before his own master. One more verse, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Pretty clear what the emphasis of this paragraph is. What does that mean? We are God's fellow workers. I think it means, given the original wording and the context, Apollos and I, Paul, Apollos and I are fellow workers with each other who belong to God, not fellow workers with each other and a third worker, God. Grammatically, it could be either. Contextually, I don't think so. And word order, I don't think so. So here's what I'm opting for. I don't think he's saying, there's three of us working here. Paul, Apollos, and God. We're fellow workers, we three. I don't think that would be sin to say that if you had the right understanding of it. I think he means, Apollos and I are fellow workers and we belong to God. We are God's fellow workers. In other words, the emphasis has not changed all the way through the paragraph to put the emphasis on God's supremacy, God's ownership, God's authority. And then he continues it in the next phrase, and you, how should you think about you? (laughs) You don't belong to John. You don't belong to Jason. You don't belong to Paul. You don't belong to Apollos. You belong to God. You are God's field. You are God's building. This is not my church. It's God's church. You are his building, his temple. You are his field, his fruit. Let's end the exposition with the breathtaking implication of belonging to God in Christ. Drop down to the end of the chapter, verse 21. These have to be some of the most breathtaking words in the Bible. If we believed these, everything would be different. If we believed these, I mean, felt them and treasured them and owned them in the core of our being, felt this way about our inheritance and our security and the infinite value of God and all that he will be for us in the future. Listen to these breathtaking words. And the most amazing thing, no, that's, that's not right. A very amazing thing about them is that they are being used to tell us not to boast in men. Let me read it. So, let no one boast in Men, in Paul, in Apollos, in John, in Jason, pick your favorite preacher. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whoa, what an argument. Your boasting gives the impression you have this inner need to line up behind a leader and get some vicarious strokes because you're so needy inside. You own the universe. That's the argument, isn't it? All things are yours. It's just a matter of time until the inheritance comes into your hands. You're acting like paupers who are trying to line up behind some important person. Please think well of me. What? You are the heirs of everything. So let me... Let me finish reading it. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos. I thought they were God's. They're yours too, right? You're children of God. You own everything God owns. Or Cephas or the world or life or death. Yes, death serves you. Or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's the wonder of belonging to God. You're God's field, God's building, 
Because you belong to Jesus, and because you belong to Jesus, everything belongs to you, and since everything belongs to you, why are you boasting in the likes of John or Jason, or Paul, or Apollos, or I could name some internet preachers. You're acting like you don't know your inheritance. That's his argument. Amazing. I love this text. Oh, God, give me faith to believe, live here. Therefore, end of exposition, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, let me turn to the Antioch moment. God, please apply that to us and our need at this moment. Antioch moment was named from Acts 13, last, what, April, about a year ago, where the Holy Spirit came on the prophets and teachers in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I had called them. And what we felt as we read that is that the Holy Spirit at a key juncture in the history of the church showed up in a little church in Antioch, and he appointed a, a missionary and his sidekick, Paul and Barnabas, and they went out according to that Antioch moment, and everything in the history of the world changed after that. It is almost impossible to overestimate what happened when Paul became the first missionary and spread the gospel throughout the Roman world. And that happened at a moment when the Holy Spirit said to five gathered men, it's them. And that's the moment we felt arriving. So the elders called themselves to extraordinary prayer, more than I've ever done with them. Now we're in that moment. And last Tuesday, after about five months, of intense searching and investigating and testing, the elders unanimously voted to recommend Jason Meyer to you as an associate pastor for preaching and vision, and I am amazed and overjoyed at what has happened, at the process, at the future I see, and at the person, Jason. So let me say a word about those three things, process, future, person. Early on, I said to the search team made up of seven uh, vocational elders and seven non-vocational elders, and I said to the Council of 40 elders, what we must pray toward, this is back last, end of last year, what we must pray toward is that God will give us not a passable candidate around which we can comfortably unite, but a candidate in whom we discern God's call so clearly and so powerfully that there will be a resounding yes from the whole search team and the whole pastoral staff and the whole council of 40 elders. And to my amazement and joy, that is exactly what God has done. As soon as we narrowed the process to two candidates, I stepped off all the committees and did no more of the interviews. There were key meetings along the way that I knew were happening, like the first elder meeting when Jason was interviewed by the entire Council of Elders for hours. I was at home knowing it was happening, praying. And when I got an email from Sam, the next morning, I believe it came, that read, the 33 elders gathered tonight 
are unanimous and enthusiastic about moving to the next step with Jason. One of the elders said, this is Sam talking, quoting this elder, one of the elders said, we cried out to God and he has answered us. I am crazy happy about this. Let us all get on the ride and throw our hands in the air. (laughs) I could tell you which elder that was, but I won't. (laughs) When I got that email, I was reading my devotions on our brown couch in the morning, and I knelt down and wept for joy. You are doing it. You are doing it. You are not only giving us a passable candidate with a passable unity. You are giving us the man on whom the elders are seeing such a hand of God that they're getting on a ride with their hands in the air saying, join us. We are crazy happy. Now, not all have personalities like that. I could name a few of those. You can ask them in the next seven weeks what their response was. But that was one. It brought me to tears of joy, and I have been beaming with gladness and gratitude ever since. Now, you can read all the details of the past process and the future process. There's the future process in your hands or on the pew beside you or in your Bible because it's in your worship folder on every campus. This is what's coming next. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to participate. Because in our church polity, you do make the final call. The elders do the work that you can't do in the rigor of investigation, but you can do much. And therefore, we've dumped on you a truckload of documents and videos, and we will do many exposures. Jason will preach three times. There will be Q&A on every campus, and here is your guide to those, that process, all right? So we, we feel like seven weeks is not a rush. We don't want anybody to feel put upon. We are loving you with all our heart and eager for you to feel honored in this. You will vote on the 20th. If you say yes to his being an associate pastor for preaching and vision, he and I overlap for a season, you will be told in the next weeks, you might have noticed that in what we put out, in the next weeks, kind of ambiguous, we don't know, in the next weeks, what date the second vote will be for Jason to be pastor, my job for preaching and vision, after which I then decisively step aside, devote my vocational energies to Bethlehem College and Seminary, wider ministry through Desiring God, writing that I'm always frustrated they can't do more of, which will be enough probably. But maybe there's more. That's process. You can ask questions about it after the service if you want. Uh, Not you in the Sunday morning, this is Saturday night, but there'll be plenty of opportunities later. A word about the future. Here's the comment of the hundreds I could make that I feel and think that I think would be maybe decisively helpful for you. What's the relationship between succession planning and long-range planning. That is, the, the way we've decided to do things and what's 5, 10, 20 years out, what's the relationship between those? And when I say long-range planning, I mean questions like this. We ever going to become three or four independent churches? We ever going to become the, a, a breed of one church on three campuses where each campus has its own pastor, preaching pastor, but you have the center core of services at the middle? Or or is there one or two or three or ten other options for how we might structure ourselves for maximum impact on the Twin Cities? 
That's what I mean by long-range planning. And here's the answer to the relationship between the two. And I leaned heavily on this, so if you have a problem with this, take it up with me mainly, though we had, we had agreement on it. The decision was made, don't make any big, long-range planning changes while John Piper is finishing his course. Very simple reason. I should not be the designer of a future I will not be here to be held accountable for. That's just patently obvious to me. It wasn't to everybody, but it is to me that if we were to devote the last one or two years of my ministry to deciding 10 years out, I said, if I were you, I'd say, well, he's not even going to be here to, to lead us in that. Shouldn't the person who's going to be here to lead us in that and to be held accountable to that be the one who's forging that with the elders and with us? And the other minor says, yes. Which means, in my view, all those questions I just mentioned about long-range dreaming and structuring and adaptation to the maximal impact here are as open as the purposes of God are open. That's all I want to say about relationship between future and how we went about doing this and my role in it. Lastly, the person. There is a lot of material for you to read on the web. If you don't have a computer and feel like you're being mistreated because we put so much on the web, please tell us. We will, I will bring it in my hands to your door if I have to, but I'm sure I won't have to. We will do everything we can to get all the information you need into your hands with or without a computer. Like if, we have, if you have a pigeon and you need to send us a question... Not that everybody who doesn't have computers is that far back, but. Jason Meyer. Here's what I want to say, one or two sentences. There is no one in the world I would rather hand off this ministry to, Jason, than you. Let me put it positively. Take all the preachers I know, young ones, rising, older ones with depth of experience, famous internet ones, loyal and fruitful lesser knowns. If they all stepped forward and volunteered, I would choose Jason Meyer. Now, you have seven weeks to find out why that is. And I don't have time to tell you now. One last thing before I ask them to come and pray for them. Besides the trust that I hope you have in your elders, you have seven weeks now to find out who he is and what his vision is and how he would lead and so on. And my plea to you, to you, those of you on the campuses where I'm not presently, my plea to all of us at Bethlehem is that the next seven weeks would become one of the most, maybe the most focused time of prayer and fasting you've ever engaged in. The reason for that is this. When we come together on the 20th to act as a body, our goal is not a savvy decision. Our goal is a work of God, a supernatural work of God to unite his church, which he purchased with his own blood, around a man whom he has appointed. Under our commitment to Christ himself, nothing more important 
will be decided perhaps in the next 30 years. So, Jason and Kara and Gracie and Ellie and Jonathan and David, please join me and I'm going to pray for them. They're not going to say anything. They'll say a lot later and then we will be finished. We'll sing a song and and be on our way. So, Jason is the one in the blue shirt. (laughs) Kara is his wife. Gracie. Allie. Now, I don't know these two guys apart. Jonathan. Jonathan. And David. And David. Here we go. There they are. Now we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the manifest grace we have discerned in this family. We believe, that is, we leaders now who have had a chance to work long and hard, believe that it is a a grace of leadership for this church, and that is now to be tested and affirmed or not by this people. I thank you for the grace that you have put in Jason for preaching and for leadership. And I ask now, Lord, that your name would be hallowed in this process to come, that your kingdom, your rule would manifest itself, that your will would be done in this family and in us, just as the angels are doing it perfectly and joyfully in heaven. I pray, Lord, for an anointing for strength and energy and wisdom to be on Jason in particular as he has to both teach in the seminary and engage in the intensity of these weeks. I pray for Kara who faces a decision and a calling as pressing as Jason's and we want her heart to be holy there. Work that according to your purposes for their family. And Lord, when I think of Gracie and Allie and Jonathan and David, I pray that these young ones will grow up and say at every stage of their young and adult life, I am so glad my daddy was a pastor or is a pastor. Lord, we're on a ride now, and I pray that our hands will be in the air with joy. I commend this family to your grace. Establish them and guide them, and I commend this people to your grace. We need the outpouring of spiritual discernment, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.